podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. So hello there and welcome to a brand new episode of a brand new series, the first episode of the DNF1 Retro Podcast, where we look back in time in F1's past and talk about some of the more uh, famous races and famous incidents that you would have remembered from F1's past. And of course, we will be analysing the events and reviewing the circumstances that were available at the time in F1's history. And joining me, of course, once again is my co-host, Mr. Courtney Pines. So Courtney, how are you? And are you looking forward to taking this trip with me through the F1 time machine? Yep. Hello, everyone. I'm definitely looking forward to going back to 2008, a time where everyone seemed to own a BlackBerry, a time where, let's not forget, Gianfranco Zola was West Ham manager, really relevant, I know. And also a time when me and you were both at six form together and our Ferrari and Lewis Hamilton colours were as strong as ever. And this was certainly um, a very interesting time to uh, be supporting our teams because they were obviously both going ham and pong um, for the 2008 World Championship. Absolutely right. And of course, for those of you wondering what time Courtney is talking about, well, the giveaway is in the title and in the thumbnail of this video already by the time that you see this podcast. But Courtney is talking about 2008, uh, a very, very special time for many F1 fans, mostly the British ones who would have bear witness to Lewis Hamilton's first of many world championship successes. But of course, as many say, the hardest one often is the first one that you win. And this is definitely... Uh, true in some regard in far, as far as Lewis Hamilton is concerned so as this series goes on guys we're going to be talking about some of the races from F1's past and if there are any in particular that you do want us to talk about or any particular events in F1's history you want us to cover in this series please do let us know in the comments section of the YouTube channel of course if you are listening in on Spotify feel free or any other podcasting platform feel free to go on the YouTube channel or go on our social media handles at Instagram and Twitter, DNF1 underscore official, as you can see in this new jazzy background that we've made specifically for this series. So we hope that you enjoy that and hope that you like that as well. If you are enjoying the video, make sure to give it a like and subscribe to the YouTube channel as well to join our ever-growing DNF1 family. We would absolutely love to have you guys on board with us for this journey and of course the regular dnf1 podcast episodes that we have every week as well so getting into it corny as you mentioned 2008 the year of the blackberry a time before smartphones were even a thing and it's strange to imagine a world without smartphones and yet it was only 12 years or 13 years ago i should say now that that was a reality for us um as you mentioned jan franco zola was the west ham manager not that that's something that i cared too much about we had the same manager for almost a quarter of a decade at that period of time um but nonetheless a very special time for f1's history and uh the Brazilian Grand Prix itself, when we go toward the 2008 and analyze the 2008 season, it was very much a season where a lot was expected of Ferrari in particular. You know, a team that in preseason looked like they were going to blow the competition away. Uh, following on from last season where Kimi Raikkonen had won his one and only world championship and the last championship that Ferrari have won as far as the drivers are concerned. 
it very much started off with Lewis Hamilton winning a very chaotic Australian Grand Prix with a very calm manner coming back from that narrow disappointment he suffered at the Brazilian Grand Prix 12 months prior to the race that we are analysing today. But as the season went on, Ferrari really showed their hand, showed their mettle, put the reliability issues that they had to bed because, of course, reliability was a factor. But then the season started to gather pace and momentum. Lewis Hamilton joined the fight. It was no longer a battle between Raikkonen and Massa at Ferrari if he was going to be world champion. Followed that with wins in Monaco and Britain for Lewis Hamilton, arguably one of his greatest performances we've seen Best in his career. Absolutely. Um, and then the races that followed. It was a very back and forth world championship, particularly between those three and also Robert Kibitzer as well, Courtney. It's, it's probably fair to say that we don't get many championships these days um, as sporadic and random as what we saw, which was indicative of the 2008 season. Yeah, we definitely need to have uh, times like those return again. They've certainly been missed. But uh, another factor worth mentioning is the weather. We, the, the weather seemed to define the season overall. You have a look back on some of the, uh, the drives, particularly from Lewis, you look back at races like Monaco and uh, Silverstone, obviously Great British Grand Prix, that were very much defined by the weather. And um, that was definitely the case when it came to Brazil as well. Mm, absolutely. It seemed that the best races in that season were the ones where it rained in particular. I mean, as you mentioned, Monaco, Silverstone race, of course, Belgium, another great race. Um, some also chaos at Fuji and Singapore, so many great races. And then, of course, it comes down to Brazil, the final race of the season. So to paint the picture of where we were going into Brazil, the Chinese Grand Prix that immediately followed, Lewis Hamilton winning that race quite dominantly. It was one of the more dominant performances of Lewis's career. And this was at a time where he really had to be flawless. He didn't have it all his own way, as he perhaps did in 2007, by comparison, where it seemed to fall away from him. This time, Lewis was a lot more adamant and a lot more defined in terms of making sure he was going to win this World Championship at all costs. I remember the start he had at Fuji, where he broke very, very late into Turn 1 defending pole, almost went into Kimi Raikkonen, um, obviously was penalised for it. And some of the fight that he showed in Belgium as well, despite having that victory taken away from him, um, up to people to still decide today, they still debate whether or not that was fair. But coming into China, a lot of pressure on Lewis's plate, on his shoulders, uh, had to respond to what the uh, to what happened 12 months ago, where he went off the road um, and beached it in the gravel. There was no gravel on the way to the pits this time that had been uh, removed in place of artificial tarmac, you know, to prevent a situation like that happening again. And he really took it in his stride. He got away at the front, the two Ferraris fighting amongst themselves. Eventually, Raikkonen gave way to Massa to play the team game to allow Massa to have the opportunity to get as close to Lewis as possible. But alas, it was to no avail and all they could do was damage limitation. It brought us to Brazil with Hamilton having a seven-point gap to Felipe Massa. Those two were the only ones left in the championship. Robert Kibitza was fighting, but alas, he could not keep up. Raikkonen as well, he fell out of the championship running for some time, probably since the Belgian Grand Prix, where it all went completely wrong for him in the battle with Hamilton. So it was mano y mano, Hamilton versus Massa. And despite everything that Lewis had been through, despite being the overwhelming favourite, the one true factor, the equaliser, if you like, in the situation, not necessarily Ferrari having the better car than the McLaren, but the home support that Felipe Massa had, the Brazilian fans. I mean, Courtney, hard for us to understand as non-sporting athletes 
of any kind, let alone in Formula One. But could you describe the level of support that Felipe Massa had going into that race in Brazil? Uh, it, it's it's almost le- the same levels Ayrton Senna had back in the early nineties when he was going for world championships mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, the Brazilian fans are definitely a passionate bunch. They really do get behind their man. You know, if you ever look back at the uh, Senna era, truly special moments, particularly when he won there um, twice in 91 and 93, if I remember rightly. Very special moments. You know, the kind of moments that sort of send chills down your spine for all the right reasons. And this was certainly the case going into this race. They really were behind Felipe. They'd gone over a decade, without, almost two decades, actually, without having a Brazilian world champion. And they thought that this could be the moment they can really crown a new hero. And they were very, very much behind Felipe. And I'm pretty, I'm pretty certain that the atmosphere itself, you know, be it pro-Felipe Massa and obviously against Lewis, that definitely put extra pressure on Lewis and the nerves... Not entirely, but there was definitely a difference in Lewis's driving. It's probably the first time in a very long time that it seemed that the occasion was starting to get the better of Lewis, particularly on a Saturday. Mm. The hunter had very much become the hunted. And in Lewis's case, probably a lot of thoughts coming back to him based on what happened the season before, where he very much was playing the underdog role he very much felt that even though he had the same advantage seven points going into this race and bear in mind this was 2008 so the point system was very different to what we're used to now it was 10 for a win going all the way down to eighth place so Lewis only needed to finish in the top five to be guaranteed the world championship regardless of what Felipe Massa did and it was going into this race where Lewis last season felt that he was the underdog he could just go at the race at his own pace didn't have to worry about his result because Alonso and Raikkonen were the ones that had to get the results. And ultimately, Kimi was the one that did uh, with the travels that Lewis had. This season, a complete contrast. It, you could tell from Lewis's the aura around him, the, the partisan crowd on Massa's side, all of that network, the pressure for him, a young man, 23 years of age, bidding to be the youngest world champion at the time. And in only his second year in Formula One, and all of that hope and ambition turned into expectation. And there was absolutely no way that Lewis could avoid showing signs of that level of pressure, for, especially for a man of his age and youthful exuberance and lack of experience compared to where he is now. I mean, he's a completely different driver these days in terms of handling things from a mental perspective, in terms of pressure. But um, it, it was a very, very strange time. And of course, Uh, A lot of pressure on him for the British fans. McLaren as well hadn't won a championship since 1999 in Mika And So at the time, nine years felt like an an eternity to McLaren, given the dominance of Ferrari and Michael Schumacher and obviously what followed in Fernando Alonso and Kimi Raikkonen after that. There was a lot of pressure on Lewis. And, um, you know, a team like McLaren, nine years without winning a world championship, given the current era that we're in, may not seem like a long time, but it does feel like an eternity back then to a team like McLaren who were looking to win a world championship. Yeah, like, if you have a look back through McLaren's history, there were high expectations, particularly during the era where some of the younger fans might not know when they were run by, managed by Ron Dennis, and Ron Dennis doesn't, he doesn't. He didn't mess around, did he? He always expected to be at the top. So the fact they went quite a long time about a championship, 
the pressure was certainly building, particularly on any drivers who were going for a world championship. And Ron Dennis had backed Lewis Hamilton from a young age. Mm. So again, I'm sure there were so many people having high expectations for Lewis. You know, it's people like Ron Dennis, other people at McLaren. The the growing fan base in the UK, you know, Lewis had, as you as you've already stated, Lewis had it pretty good in the first season. He didn't really have high expectations. It was expected to be a number two driver, but the pressure was on him this season. And it it definitely did put all the factors we've mentioned already, putting all of it together. He, he certainly was nervy in this Grand Prix, there's no doubt about it. Mm, absolutely. But of course, that wasn't the only story in that particular race. There was two other stories at hand. Of course, Rubens Barrichello um, at the time was the uh, all-time most appeared F1 driver or did the most F1 starts. It was something for the Brazilian fans to celebrate. Um, you know, we already mentioned their rich pedigree of former world champions, the likes of Emerson Fittipaldi, Nelson Piquet, Ayrton Senna, of course, the last Brazilian world champion in the early 90s. Um, and Massa needed to try and emulate that and add his name to that list. And he was in supreme confidence. Reliability and consistency were probably key factors in this 2008 season. And at times, you could argue that Ferrari could have won this championship on so many occasions. Either one of their two drivers, it just got to the point where Felipe Massa had turned the screw and really started to become world championship material. And despite the margin that faced him, it didn't seem unrealistic that he could win this world championship. And, uh, you know, so there was a lot going in his favour in that case. The other driver, of course, that the headlines were focused on was David Coulthard. David Coulthard making his debut in 1994, replacing the late Ayrton Senna at the Spanish Grand Prix, making his final race of his career for Red Bull. Um, And it was a very good career for DC, you know, uh, 247 Grand Prix, 13 wins, 62 podiums, 12 pole positions, racing some of the best teams in Formula One, raced at Williams, of course, when Williams were at the top of their game went to McLaren for nine years, and then, of course, Red Bull. Looking back on DC's career, Courtney, um, I suppose the biggest question mark would be his move to McLaren, not necessarily um, you know, moving to McLaren, because, of course, it proved to be a smart move, ultimately, but it was the timing. Um, if I cast your mind back to 1995, when he was mulling over his future at Williams, and instead of going uh, staying at Williams for 96 to partner Damon Hill... He decided to go to McLaren um, in 1996 to join Mika Hakkinen. And it's probably fair to say at the time that it wasn't really a performance-based move. Williams wanted to keep him. It was more about the money. Um, I mean, I'm not one to tell DC how to live his life. He knows better than anyone else. But um, would you say that perhaps if DC, in, with the you know, benefit of hindsight, decided to chase performance in a car over his next career move rather than move for money, could DC have won a world championship? in maybe 1997, perhaps, instead of Jack Villeneuve? Or do you feel that the McLaren move was the best move for him at the time? The moves that David Coulthard made sort of remind me a little bit of Fernando Alonso's career. Now, I know Fernando got the two world championships with Renault, but it just seemed that David Coulthard was quite unfortunate in the timing of moves that he made. So he moved on to McLaren when Williams had another championship or two still in their belt, underneath their belt. But then also when he was at McLaren, just as Mika Hakkinen had kind of reached his peak and was sort of contemplating whether to let David Coulthard have a guy at the championships, 
along came the, the famous Schumacher-Ferrari dominance of Formula 1. So he missed his chance. It just seemed that the timing of his moves seemed to go against him. And it's just one of those things. Formula 1 is a lot about, you know, big debate at the moment. Mm. It's about, is it about the car or the driver? It, there's no ignoring the fact that a lot of it does come down to the team that you you choose to join and the timing of it. And it just seems that, yeah, he was. He was unlucky given the uh, the time that he chose to move from Williams to McLaren, without a doubt. Hmm. Well, McLaren at the time were looking to try and sign some marquee drivers. And I think obviously their number one target was Michael Schumacher from Benetton um, into the 1996 car. Of course, we know he went to Ferrari instead. Um, and that was, you know, already done. You see how the domino effect affects the driver market in ways like that. And I remember Ron Dennis famously saying it was very, very much... Um, brash about this and that he kept saying you know we wanted Schumacher Schumacher was interested but of course he went to Ferrari but uh, other than Schumacher we pretty much controlled uh into the driver market in terms of which drivers went where and of course DC was a big catalyst in what followed because of course in 96 they rec- Williams recruited Jack Villeneuve it proved to be a smart move in the end even though it was for a short time but um, obviously the, you know some of the driver moves that followed but uh, you know with DC it was a very good career um, for him, if you think about it, it was a very good number one, number two driver, as you mentioned to Mika Hakkinen, had a good opportunity in 2001, perhaps reliability issues for David, probably denied him an opportunity of having a fair crack at winning that world title. I mean, it was very difficult to topple Michael Schumacher in that Ferrari dominant era, but he certainly had a good go. But so going to 2008 Brazil, Courtney, let's, you know, talk more about that weekend in general. Qualifying, it was very much Massa versus Hamilton for a long part of it. The two guys really training times. It was hard to call who was going to get on pole position. But in Hamilton's case, he only really needed to be in the ballpark. He never necessarily needed to beat Massa on the day. And it's probably fair to say, as the weekend progressed on, perhaps Lewis realised that and perhaps his game and his level went down a little bit. But it was so the hardest part for Lewis was when he started to realise that he couldn't find that level he had before. He just couldn't raise his game. Yeah. But um, you know, and it's everything putting everything together, putting everything together. It's difficult to get that balance right. If you're in Lewis's position, it's difficult because it's as if we can only imagine because we're unfortunate we've never been in Formula One cars. It must be very difficult to get that perfect balance between. Being reserved enough to not, you know, put you put your weekend at risk, but at the same time, don't become too relaxed and find yourself halfway down the grid because it's very easy to do that in Formula One. And it seems that overall, Lewis did still put himself in a comfortable position, so it could have been a lot worse for him. Could have been, of course. Let's not forget, all Lewis had to do was finish at the top five, and in qualifying, he did what he needed to do. You know, he qualified. In the top four, a little bit disappointing in Q3. He just never really able to find that pace ultimately where everyone else up their game. And, uh, you know, so you had Massa on pole. Trulli was second. Yano Trulli, uh, we saw earlier in the year, 2020, uh, well, earlier last year, I should say, AWS um, provided a statistic, well, analysis of the greatest qualifiers in F1 history up to a certain point. They had Yano Trulli as number two on the list, incredibly. I think Lewis Hamilton was number one, possibly, or Aston Senna, one of the two. But Jarno Trulli, number two on that list. That was remarkable. I don't know where they got that from. I mean, Trulli was a fantastic qualifier. And I think throughout his career, despite his successes at Renault, partnering Fernando Alonso and getting the odd race win here and there, the one at Monaco, I think in 2005, being the highlight for him in his career, um, it's probably fair to say that Jarno himself was definitely a better driver on a Saturday 
than he was on a Sunday. Well, yeah, if you have a look at the races themselves, you had the well-known phrase back then, which was the uh, the truly train, because he mm-hmm. had this knack of being a good defensive driver, probably too much for the for the guys behind him. He had this knack of like having several cars behind him, and it would define a lot of races actually. So the truly train is still uh, is still very much a big memory of that era, Formula One, definitely. I think the personal highlights for me for Yano was um, back in the Jordan days in the early 2000s in Monaco. Yano would usually qualify very high up the grid, as prone to his uh, ability as a, qualif- a good qualifier. And he would hold up a lot of the field behind him. When this is a one-stop race, you really had to try and make up ground where you could. And if you got stuck in traffic, that was your race earlier. And I remember seeing some of the drivers behind him. And um, it was almost as if like, well, I hope you like the look of a Jordan gearbox or yellow, because you're going to have to watch that for the next hour and a half, because truly is going absolutely nowhere. It would drive people insane. But as I said, great qualifying for him. It was his best qualifying, first front row position since uh, 2005 in the Renault, actually. So it was a nice turn of pace. And it was a real sign of the progress Toyota was making. Toyota all season long were really showing signs of progress, really competing at the front of the field, challenging for podiums himself. Timo Glock, another driver that was doing well at the time. And it kind of coincided with the upturning form that they had. And also what transpired in 2009, they were one of the few teams that really got the car right in terms of getting the regulations right you know the likes of them Williams Braun of course and Red Bull whereas the likes of Ferrari and McLaren had invested so much time and resources into the 2008 cars they were almost in the midfield from the get-go it was a massive surprise so you know it was a good time for Toyota a project that they spent many years getting right when they joined F1 in 2002 that seemed to be one that was going to be very much short-lived but they really came to the fore in 2009 and it showed in their 2008 car where they were making progress kind of similar to what uh racing point nowadays and what they'll probably try and do as uh, aston martin going forward but um you know the, so that was the top four hamilton in fourth place of course kimi raikkonen third heike kovalainen in fifth place fernando alonso sixth Vettel seventh, Sebastian Vettel, very impressive season he had. Um, started off the season a bit rocky, had a hard time trying to stay out of incidents on lap one. But of course, as the season went on, become more of a prominent factor at the front of the field, which of course we saw in Monza 2008 getting his debut win, which of course led to his opportunity with the uh, with the Red Bull team, the senior Red Bull team. Yeah, if you particularly look at that um, performance in Monza, Really difficult conditions. Another race in 2008, we had the quite wet conditions and he absolutely blitzed the field. Let's be honest, he absolutely wiped the floor. Similar to how we saw Lewis in um, in, in the uh, in Silverstone. Absolutely wiped the floor with the with the opposition. And he was getting a lot of performances from a car that had no right to be towards the front. And, you know, you even look towards like this race itself. He was getting the car in the upper echelons of the grid and... It was very much the start of a very good career. And definitely going into Red Bull, there were high hopes for him. And obviously, history suggests that was the case. Mm, Absolutely. And uh, obviously, we know the rest as far as his career is so far. Of course, hopefully, some more upturning fortunes in the current season. But of course, to the race itself. Now, the race itself, with Lewis in fourth place, it did seem people were relatively confident that he could bring that home. They definitely felt he had a car capable of maintaining that position, um, perhaps maybe getting on the podium with Yano truly sort of out of position from his superb qualifying performance. But then, of course, 
the one big mitigating factor, the, the uh, caveat, if you like, that has been prominent so much in 2008 was the weather. And just minutes before the race, the heavens absolutely opened. And at the time, Courtney, given what we had seen from the season, that was probably something we thought would go in Lewis's favour. I remember a lot of Ferrari fans thinking, oh, great. You know, it's rain. This is what Lewis wants. This is exactly what he needs to try and uh, catch Massa, pass him and win the world championship. Yeah, but it just seemed like it was almost a sign from the gods. So I'm not the most religious of people, but it just seemed that there was a divine intervention. The moment that happened, we all knew this was going to be a special race. And God, were we right? I mean, we would not have expected the chaos that was about to ensue because when it rains in Brazil, it doesn't, it doesn't rain just a little bit. It rains cats and dogs. Mm. And it just, with Formula One cars, all you need is a little bit of moisture and the race is thrown into chaos. And when I was watching, I, I, I felt nervous. I know how good Lewis is in the rain, but I thought this is the last thing. You, you just want a smooth, dry race, get the car, um, fall for hire, and everything's okay. But I'm sure the neutrals will have loved seeing it happen just before a race. Mm, absolutely. And the unpredictability element of it was such a huge factor. Um, despite Lewis being at the front in those wet weather races for a lot of the time and really taking advantage of the conditions, it was never a guarantee, especially compared to what we know today, where in Formula One, if it rains, there's a good chance that Lewis Hamilton is going to win that race. It's almost to a point where it's more predictable than it is in the dry. But this was a different Lewis Hamilton to what we are used to right now. This, you know, We're talking about the seasoned veteran. We're talking about the young hotshot superstar that was chasing his first real moment of Formula One immortality. He was chasing it. And the pressure on that young man's shoulders at the time, I can't imagine what that must have been like. He probably thought, you know, manage his race out, plan it. It's going to be nice and dry. Not going to worry about it. I mean, it was the threat of weather, but he thought, you know, I'll handle it. As soon as the rain come down, he probably thought, ah, damn. I really could have done without that today. Not to mention all the pressure from the Brazil fans on every moment that that car loses a bit of control. With no traction control as well, back then, those Brazil fans would have been roaring to try and see if they could try and distract him or put more pressure on him. But as I said, as the race got underway in those conditions, you know, it, there was a delay to the start, of course, because they wanted to change wet tyres. It was a massive, frantic panic. Um, there was only one car that didn't change tyres, and that was Robert Kubica, Courtney. And uh, he ended up going into the pits from the formation lap, and that completely ruined his race. Although Robert inadvertently didn't realise that he would become a factor later on in terms of the, the eventual world champion at the end of the race. But um, we'll get to that as, as and when. Um, but at the start of the race... Massa started very well, as you expected, handled the pressure really well. It was like he was driving in a different league to everyone else, and that culminated in his performance. Um, Heike Kovalainen, we don't, haven't really talked too much about him, but a driver that was in place to replace Fernando Alonso, a driver who contributed a lot of the friction and tension in that rivalry with Lewis last season, a driver McLaren were probably very happy in some regards to see the back of. And... Um, Kovalainen, by comparison, hadn't really been able to demonstrate the ultimate pace I think McLaren were hoping for in a number two driver. I think whilst Lewis was probably driving to the utmost performance that car could give at the time to challenge the Ferraris, I think they were expecting Heike to be more of a team player and be up there with Lewis to cause Ferrari a few more problems than he did. I suppose other than Hungary, we never really saw that too much from Heike. No, and there is a reason why McLaren went on to replace him a, a couple of seasons later because 
you know, of course, teams would like, ideally, like to have a number one, the number two driver, but you need your number two driver to be close enough to make life harder for the other team, which in this case were Ferrari, because over the course of the season, yes, Ferrari were fastest, but the gap wasn't massive. So they needed that number two driver to be close enough, to be good enough on a good weekend from McLaren to take points away from Ferrari. But that didn't happen enough. Hmm. But Hake, he's certainly done his bit to help Lewis at the start of this race, though. So I must give him that. Yeah, he did. Um, you know, he got away pretty well, almost better than Lewis, but he tucked around the outside to stop the likes of Fernando Alonso and Sebastian Vettel behind Lewis Hamilton, because uh, let's be honest, I mean, Fernando Alonso in particular, whilst Vettel, you know, there was no real issues with Lewis already. Um, ah, angst feelings, I suppose, a better way, about a better way of putting it, I should say. Um Fernando going into this race had made comments after China and saying that he wanted Massa to win the championship or Ferrari to win the championship. And that made big headlines because everyone knew that him and Lewis weren't exactly the best of friends after what happened last season. And um, as fiery a character as Fernando is, he clarified his comments. He said, well, nothing against Lewis. You know, I'm not pro Massa and anti Lewis. It's more of a reflection of my time at McLaren and how, you know, the time that we had wasn't exactly the most harmonious. So really, I kind of want the Ferraris to win. And in a weird way, this had two meanings, not necessarily um, anti McLaren or anti Lewis. But Fernando, I think in his mind was thinking a few years ahead. At this time, there was a lot of speculation over his future at Renault especially after Crashgate in Singapore, Ferrari seemed the logical solution and Ferrari were very much looking at the prospect of bringing in Fernando Alonso. And at the time, to replace Massa, they felt Kimi was going to be leading the team forward. Ultimately, that didn't happen. And it ended up being Kimi that was being replaced a year earlier than he would have liked in 2010. So there was that element in Fernando that we absolutely love about him. Very controversial character, just as controversial as he is quick. But there was the element over his, he had to be mindful about what he said in favor of Ferrari because he was at the time, he was probably in the early stages of lining up a move there. Yeah, but it's always been the case with Fernando, though. He's always been very outspoken, um, you know, always sort of, particular time, always in the center of the controversy and you're right looking back at the time and looking well looking forward to his time going to Ferrari you're right there would have been um, there would have been talks at that point so when you have a look back now with with hindsight it's quite interesting that he made those remarks because mm, n- we were none the wiser I mean there was the speculation regarding his future I think it was after the Bahrain Grand Prix only two races into the season Kimi Raikkonen was aw- asked about his teammate for 2010 or even 2009 he said he had no idea. He didn't want to say anything. You know, the plan was, it seemed that Ferrari were going to bring Alonso into teammate, uh, partner up with Kimi. Uh, they weren't sure what was going to happen with Massa. But of course, as time went on, Massa had really, and, and in a way, this probably served as a catalyst for Massa's performances or his upturning form, where he really showed them that you can't get rid of me. Um, you know, he was meant to be the next Schumacher or Schumacher was meant to be like a protege. Uh, so he was meant to be a protege to Schumacher. Um but he never was really able to deliver only until the latter end of 2008, where we were started to see Massa's true quality come to the fore. And then obviously the upturn in form and Raikkonen's downturn in form, by contrast, really shifted the balance in Massa's favour and Alonso obviously replacing Kimi. 
for 2010. But as I said, the race got underway. Um, you know, good start for most, except for DC, unfortunately, who got tagged by Rosberg and then eventually was sent into a spin and hit by Rosberg's teammate Nakajima, a driver who David was getting very frustrated in colliding into Kazuki Nakajima, which ultimately broke his suspension and ended his Formula One career just like that, which is a real shame. He had that special white Red Bull livery that was really nice at the time, but unfortunately, we didn't really get to see too much of it on the day, did we? No, real pity. Um, he sort of kind of went out the back door, didn't he, unfortunately, for DC? Mm. You know, particularly given the way, you know, the, the high profile this race was. And he sort of went out right at the beginning. It's, yeah, you're right. It's a shame we didn't get to see that livery because it was nice. Nice livery. Red Bull do some nice liveries, to be fair, but they don't showcase them enough. But back to 2008. <laughs> and yeah, it's a shame. It's just a shame that, you know, a good, a good career like his sort of went out in such a low profile way. It did, yeah. Um, I mean, Brazil tends to be the scene of a lot of drivers in their swung song races. Of course, we saw Michael Schumacher's brilliant performance, uh, which was unfortunate. It didn't really come to anything in the end in 2006, the first time he retired. And uh, he had a decent one in 20, uh, 2012 as well, but that didn't really amount to anything either in terms of a standout performance. Um, and then you had Felipe Massa's first retirement as well, which uh, he never finished that race. So Brazil, very much a cruel mistress in terms of trying to provide a decent send-off to some drivers of F1, F1's past and uh, David was certainly no exception to this one as well but a good career nonetheless but as the race went on Courtney the track started to drive very quickly the safety car was out after that first lap incident and there was a big dilemma for a lot of drivers you know because the track got wet very early on but it was drying out very quickly and you and I both know about Brazil half the track can be dry as a bone the other half can be wet and as soon as you start to see a dry line forming in brazil you really have to try and take that gamble as to when it's the right time to put dries on ultimately some of the guys pitted in a bit later on a few laps in but fizzy keller down in 18th place in the force india a race winner at brazil in 2003 in the jordan the famous race that got red flagged and um they gave it to kimi raikkonen but when they did the count back a week they realized fizzy keller was actually ahead of him um at the time and then he got awarded the race win a week later at uh, the Imola race but um you know he decided to pit after the second lap took the gamble to dry tires and that paid off massively when the leaders did the first round of pit stops about 10 laps later yeah well it's one of the uh, one of the defining moments of the race because he not only himself but Alonso ended up ahead of Lewis and Lewis had a lot of work to do and when Lewis caught up with Fisichella, that was one of the most nail-biting moments of the race where I thought, you know what, he's, he's gonna uh, he's gonna overdo this and take himself out. But he pulled Lewis pulled off uh, a blinding move on Fisichella. And if he hadn't made that move, the result of that race could have been very different. Absolutely. I, I, as I said before, I think Lewis was in the mindset that as long as he maintains position, it doesn't do anything stupid. He should have the performance to stay ahead of the guys behind him and just bring it home. It was almost Alain Prost-esque, you know, you calculating uh, how good you need to be to make sure that you finish in the right position, knowing that Felipe Massa had nothing to lose and had to win so he was going to take all the risks although Massa was in a league of his own on the day it must be said but after that first pit stop you're right Courtney Lewis got bogged down uh, Raikkonen managed to clear Trulli Hamilton didn't and as a result not only did Trulli stay ahead of him but as you said Alonso, Fisichella, even Vettel 
who pitted very, very early, was on a free stop strategy. So he was completely out of sync and chasing Massa at the time. That's how good Vessel was in the middle stint. But Lewis was really bogged down, had to really up his pace and start going from a, a game plan that required him to just maintain position, not do anything stupid and bring on the championship, to now attacking, knowing he had to pass guys to win the title. And that move on Fizzy Keller, as you described, truly making a mistake going off, giving him sixth place quite easily. But Fizzy Keller, he was stuck behind him for five laps. And I remember seeing Timo Glock catching up to him in the sister Toyota, Sebastian Bourdais in the Toro Rosso. I mean, that's a name that takes me back, Sebastian Bourdais. Um, a very illustrious career outside of F1, but in F1, not so much compared to the hotshot Vettel, who was really making headlines by comparison. But they were really closing in on Lewis. It was really, really worrying until Lewis went for the move into turn one in difficult conditions, just about got it slowed down and avoid hitting that force India and going into fifth place. It was a bold move, but it was one that had to be done. And it put Lewis back in championship contention. And as the second stint went on, Courtney, um, it was very much cat and mouse, really, with Lewis and some of the other guys. But then, of course, Sebastian Vettel making an earlier pit stop than the others coming out of second place back into the fight was really harrying and harassing Lewis for a lot of that race in particular. And it must be said, um, Vettel at the time and Timo Glock didn't realise that they were going to be two very huge factors in this world championship, especially uh, Timo Glock himself. But um, it was an incredible race to watch at the time, really watching Lewis almost succumb to the immense pressure that he was under. It was like watching a man constantly shaking in a Formula One car, praying that the race could just end with him in fifth place. Well, at that point, there were so many different situations going on. Sometimes it's difficult to keep up, but this race in particular, it was it was awful. It was, it was like one minute, because when you obviously like supporting one of the guys, why are you thinking, okay, yeah, he's got this under control? And then 30 seconds later, you're thinking, God, this, this is over. It was just nip and tuck, nip and tuck all the way through. And I, I've got to say, I don't, I don't think I was relaxed for very long in that race at all. It was... God, looking back, is this all coming back to me? It, it really was. It was unique because mm. there was so many, like so, because it wasn't even just with with the race itself. It was it was the weather. You just didn't know whether a, a Grand Prix defining shower was going to come along and change everything. Mm. Absolutely. And, um, you know, it was at that point of the race after Vettel made his second stop, he was very much lightly fueled and he was all over the back of Lewis Hamilton, putting a lot of pressure on him um, for fifth and sixth place. And Lewis really was in a position where he could not afford to lose any more places. Eventually, he did get up to fourth, um, you know, with, with Vettel making that pit stop and obviously allowing Lewis. So Lewis was in a very comfortable position at the time. And even if Vettel did get past him, as long as he kept the likes of Glock, Bordet, Weber, etc. behind him. He was okay. Nick Heifeld was completely out of sync. He tried to gamble on a strategy, didn't really pay off for him. Robert Kibitza, as we already mentioned, was out of contention because he made the wrong choice on strategy at the start. Um, and, and until the threat of weather came, it did seem, despite there being free races at the time, and we were talking Massa completely on his own at the front, Alonso and Raikkonen having a battle between themselves for third place, and then you had Hamilton, Vettel, Glock, Bordet, Weber, all harrying behind for the fourth all the way down to seventh and eighth. Until the weather came, it was a huge factor. But of course, when the weather did come, it was amazing how the race completely turned. It was almost like a Steven Spielberg script um, of how the race unfolded in its final stages. Of course, when the rain started to come down, it was very light. 
the drivers themselves were all thinking, right, when is the best time to pit? What is everybody else doing? Should I pit? And ultimately what happened, the rain started to get a little bit heavier. The drivers did make a pit. I think uh, Lewis was one of the people that pitted quite early. I think it was like lap 66. Um, Kovalainen, he pitted on lap 65. Kovalainen was kind of like the guinea pig. He went first, decided, yeah. everyone thought, yeah, that seems like the sensible thing to do. It's going to get worse. Let's pit now to sort of cover off the back markers trying to make that early stop. In the same way Fizzy Keller had, his early stop probably instigated that reaction from guys to pit early to cover off the runners. Because with about five, six laps to the end, they had literally no time to recover position. So they did that. Massa was the last one on 67, but it was Timo Gluck the driver who grabbed the headlines towards the end of the race, decided to take the gamble and stay on the dry tyres. And for the first few laps, he climbed all the way to fourth from seventh. It seemed like a stroke of genius. This guy was passing back markers left, right and centre, almost as if it was a completely different league to everyone else. And he was going potentially for a podium, chasing Raikkonen and Alonso. He was that quick. And um, it did seem all the while, Courtney, that that was going to pay off for him big time. Well, yeah, because as, as I stated before, it was the, the weather conditions are so changeable. But at this point, it wasn't raining heavily enough for the dry tyres to really fall off. So you're right. He was in a position where he would could potentially go for a podium. But just like with every other moment in this Grand Prix, everything was on a knife edge and things were yet to change, were, were to change yet again. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, coming to one of the key moments in that race, because I mentioned Robert Kibitza earlier, not knowing how big of a factor he was going to play in this race and championship all the way down, a lap down, mind you, as well from the leaders. He was completely nowhere considering he was in the championship race up until the Chinese Grand Prix. And then a few laps towards the end on lap 69 the rain started to fall a bit heavier and Lewis was really struggling. I mean, for those of you that hadn't seen this race or don't remember it too fondly, I recommend watching it back. We were seeing at the time the ultimate collapse of a world championship challenge from a guy for the second year in a row that looked like he had it in the bag and it looked like history was about to repeat itself for all the wrong reasons in Lewis's case. He was really struggling. The nerves were really setting in. It was almost as if Lewis was not driving that car. Someone else had stolen his crash helmet, locked him away somewhere. Um, like the, the funny Will Smith parody video that he, you know, did re more recently. It was almost as if Will himself oh, yeah. had, had done that back in 2008 instead of uh, 2019 and decided to drive in Lewis's car instead of him. Um, and what happened was they were trying to get part. Kubica was trying to unlap himself. Vettel was very smart. He let Kubica go through. He didn't want to let Kubica impact his race. Perhaps sensing an opportunity, you know, Vettel very wily and cunning beyond his years, as we've seen in Formula One uh, years that went followed by afterwards. And then Kubica going into Junkau corner caught Hamilton completely by surprise, trying to unlap himself in the way that Ocon did for Stappen as well, and was very very. Um, aggressive in trying to unlap himself i remember in monza there was an incident between the two um and kubica had said hamilton was a bit too aggressive and perhaps lewis needs to learn to be a bit more considerate to other drivers it was a tag that lewis was attributed a lot um in his early career complete contrast to the driver that's so much more calm in battle than we are now much more calculating and perhaps a bit more respectful to his fellow competitors um not that they've shown that same courtesy to him in future years it must be said but 
at the time, you know, Lewis was attached with this stigma. And Robert Kibitz, perhaps with that in mind, decided to send one up the inside of Jung Cal, completely threw Lewis off to force him to go very wide. And Sebastian Vettel took perfect advantage of this, going up the inside and up the hill and overtaking Lewis, putting Lewis in sixth place, meaning that Massa would be world champion at this point in time. And I'm not going to lie, Courtney, I remember that moment so, so well. Cutting to that, the commentary team were gasping, think, oh no, this is going to happen again. The shock, the horror from a British perspective, the McLaren team head in hands, Lewis's brother Nicholas worrying, thinking, surely this isn't going to happen again. And then the garage is down the opposite end of the pit garage because McLaren were the last pit garage there because of disqualification from the constructors in 2007. Ferrari were going crazy. The Brazilian fans were going crazy. The crescendo, an explosion of noise from the grandstands. Massa's family going crazy, thinking he's going to do it. We were waiting for the moment that it was all going to come to him. And it just happened so quickly. But, and I say, but, like so many great film scripts, as this race proved to be worthy of, there was one more twist in the tale. And I think, Courtney, probably best for you to describe this as you remember this oh so vividly well Timo Glock's final lap of the race the rain started to fall massively and that dry strategy that he gambled on that seemed to pay off so much started to fall apart in the worst way imaginable for him and also for Ferrari at this point we all thought it it was over most of us forgot about Timo Glock no offense to the guy Almost everyone forgot about Timo Glock. It was all, all the question that was on everyone's minds was, will Lewis be able to get past Sebastian Vettel before the end of this race? Particularly in the track where it's actually not easy to overtake. So there was a lot of pessimism at that point. So we're on the final lap before this is it. This is going to be Lewis's last chance to overtake Sebastian Vettel. Not looking likely. This is over. And all of a sudden, Martin Brundle cuts in with those famous words. Is that Glock? It is. And what a moment it was for McLaren fans, Lewis Hampton fans, for the Brits that had gone a long time themselves about seeing the world champion. This was a great moment for for British well, for British sport in general. And I remember to this day, it's probably the most I've cheered watching a Formula One race. I was reacting as if West Ham had just won the FA Cup. <laughs> I was jumping around the room going, Go on, my son. Go on, my son, because on the on the last bend straight, shall we say, it's an upward, isn't it? It's an upward trajectory. Mm. I just remember just pushing him, pushing him. You know, you just feel like you're behind him. Just pushing him to get over that line on that final. I was jumping around the room. My dog was looking at me as if I'd lost the plot. It was a beautiful moment. And as you can tell to the day, it still brings back fantastic memories. It truly was one of the most remarkable moments in sport that I have ever seen live on TV. And I, I remember so vividly, I remember Massa coming through the final corner, you know, the rain really pouring down, but he'd done the job. He was in a league of his own, a world championship worthy performance. It was at this point, none of us had no idea what was going on with Timo Glock. None of the broadcasters had picked up the fact that Glock was losing so much time. We'd forgot that he was still on the dry tyres. Everyone thought he was on wets like everyone else. That was how crazy this strategy was from him and how crazy it was. It was completely unexpected. And yet as soon as Massa crossed the line, you heard that explosion of noise, the eruption of joy from the Brazilian fans. They thought, we all thought, Massa had won the world championship and Ferrari had done it again and it all fell away from Lewis. It was only until that point 
the cameras pan. Where is Lewis Hamilton? Is he still in sixth place? The timing screens, the intervals, we didn't have the live timings of everybody. We right. didn't know how close he was to Glock. We thought he was half a minute behind him, like, like he was already. But then as the camera pans to Lewis, all of a sudden, Kibitza's passed Glock. Vettel's passed Glock. We're seeing a Toyota. We thought it was truly being lapped or something crazy like that because his race capitulated, but it wasn't. It was Glock. And as soon as Lewis got past Glock, the whole dynamic the landscape had changed the fans had no idea of what was going on they couldn't see it on the screens lewis crossed the line they were cheering they thought massa was world champion but as soon as they saw the timing screens reminiscent of what happened in 75 with james hunt lewis fifth place enough to win the world championship and all of a sudden those screams those cheers of joy fell silent almost like that it was so quick and it basically was summed up by the Ferrari garage where they were all celebrating Massa's father and his brother going crazy until the mechanic at Ferrari had basically rushed in to tell them it's he hasn't done it. Lewis got fifth place at the last corner. He passed Glock and you could see on Massa's dad's face. And I'll never forget this moment, it, how quickly the joy turned to despair and shock. He couldn't believe the news he'd heard. And yet further down the garage, Martin Whitmarsh, Ron Dennis going crazy. Nicole Scherzinger, the pussy get dull. And Lewis Hamilton's girlfriend at the time going crazy in the hills. I mean, fair play to her how she managed to jump for joy in those hills without falling over. I'll give her credit where credit's due, Nicole. Great stuff there. Good, it was, good changeable yeah. conditions, Adam. Yeah, well, there you go. Absolutely. Um, maybe <laughs> I wouldn't know. Probably not. But um, yeah, absolutely fantastic. And as a Ferrari fan, it was I couldn't believe what I had just seen. I was ready to celebrate. I thought it was over. It's like you never see that sort of thing happen in Formula One. You see it in other sports, like the last minute winner of stuff. But Formula One, you think, well, surely it's over. And then it cut to that. I, I mean, it was absolutely perfect. Whoever was doing the directing of the broadcast of the Formula One live feed from there, absolutely timed that to perfection. From Massa's uh, you know, elation of winning, the ecstasy that come with that, to the despair that happened almost second after afterwards with Lewis Hamilton passing Glock, going up the hill to win his first world championship. And I'm not going to lie, Corn, he's still one of the most incredible moments in sporting history that I've ever seen. Now, don't It will take some time before Formula One manages mm. to top something as special as that. But alas, it crowned uh, a new oh. world champion. Yeah, but the moment that stuck with me, actually, was that that, that scene with uh, Felipe Massa's family. So the moment they found out, and then you saw a Ferrari mechanic <laughs> lose his shit. I'm thinking you have a through cycle where he headbutted the he wall, and then like it, a part yeah. of like the decoration, mm. the death, a part of like the the fittings of the decoration fell yeah. off. I thought that 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 moment alone just summed it all up. I know, and that was a big fud. It was like bang. I was like, wow. It was like I could I could tell the passion of these guys. I was like, whoa! Like I I don't I wouldn't have wanted to be the person to try and console him or get him to calm down. I'd have just like nope, leave him to it. Like leave the garage and just like congratulate McLaren and just walk off. I mean. Ferrari had won the Constructors' Championship as well, so there was reason for them to celebrate. But given the circumstances as they occurred in such dramatic fashion, I could understand why that was the last thing that they wanted to worry themselves about after being seconds away from winning a World Championship again, and it was gone in an instant. And there's no other way to feel. Fair play to Felipe Massa for how he celebrated on the podium, being defiant like a warrior, really being passionate to the Brazil fans whilst holding back the choking sensation and the tears that he was really struggling to keep to himself. It was an absolutely incredible finale to an incredible season and 
part of me looks at that and thinks, I really wish we got stuff like that again. Of course, we've had dramatic finales in recent years, but nothing quite like that. And that era was certainly summed up with many classical moments, but none more so special than perhaps that one for the significance and also how amazingly sporadic it really was. It was a season where Lewis was not meant to win that championship. Ferrari really should have done it. It was a case of either Massa or Kimi, which one it was going to be. But you know what? The tenacity and the strength and character that Lewis had obviously built up from the disappointment that he had a year ago culminated in basically one afternoon, or if anything, probably for five minutes from the moment the championship was gone to the moment he'd won it. I think another point worth uh, making, which is quite relevant today, Lewis Hamilton won that championship in what wasn't the fastest car that season. So maybe mm. that's worth remembering for some of the people that want to say Lewis can only win championships when the car's fastest day. Well, let me put it this way. Um, if championships were awarded in the same way that they are now in terms of fastest laps being worth extra points, Lewis would not have won the championship. Massa would have actually picked him with fastest laps. But alas, obviously it's different there. So it really does sum up this argument, of course, people making with Lewis now over car versus driving. A lot of people that still think the car is the definitive factor. In some ways, that is a fair statement. But there's, you know, this was evidence that Lewis was capable of winning against the odds when it seemed a year ago, by contrast, that they had the best car and they didn't do it. He was able to turn the tables when Ferrari really should have sealed it. But Alas, that, that's history for you. And it was absolutely incredible. And I'd, I definitely recommend anyone who hasn't seen it or it's been a while since you've seen it, go back and watch it again because it's real Hollywood-worthy drama of the highest regard in Formula One. And it was an incredible story. And um, the best part of doing this episode is being able to watch that back um, and almost relive it, but with a more neutral perspective because, of course, as a Ferrari fan at the time, um, I still am, you know, it, it was very difficult for me to watch the, those last moments. I was already celebrating and then it was gone. Yeah, and at the same time, Adam, I can't take the smirk off my face from remembering <laughs> it. <laughs> yeah, I can certainly imagine. But yeah, what an incredible finale. And of course, my favourite moment, Lewis's dad, Anthony Hamilton, hurrying away and trying to usher himself and Lewis through all the media buzz and the journalists trying to get a glimpse of the new world champion, the youngest world champion at the time, shouting, get him a drink, get him a drink. And I can totally understand that, but it was absolutely hilarious to watch at the time. Um, every photo that I saw, literally, you couldn't find a photo of Lewis without his dad in it. But um, a very proud man, I imagine, on the occasion and brilliant scenes to see. But of course, you know, we've got to wrap this up in the way, uh, wrap this up anyway. Um, it, it's been fun going back in time looking at this. I hope you guys enjoyed this as well, you know, and there are other races that we do want to cover, other sequences, other events. Do let us know in the comments what races you would like to cover in this series as well. If you've been, if you're liking this series and if you want us to do more episodes of it, we certainly will. This is, of course, a trial. If you guys are not enjoying it as much, then we will uh, put a pin in it for a while and maybe come back to it later on. But let us know what you think. Courtney, as always, thank you for joining me on this trip through F1's past and uh, hopefully many more great episodes like that. But let us know, what do you want us to cover next? We've got some great ideas for some great episodes, but we need you guys to tell us what ones you want us to cover uh, in the future of this series. But um, as I said already, give the video a like, subscribe to the channel, and obviously follow us on social media. The handles are on the background as well. If you are listening on Spotify or Google Play or Apple Podcasts, make sure to you know let us know how you feel about it on social media as well, and let us know what other races you'd like us to cover. Courtney, before we wrap this up, any final words? Any final words? 
um, I wish it was 2008 again. <laughs> yeah, probably probably fair to go with that one. I don't think I would complain too much compared to yeah. where we are now. But yeah, uh, I digress nonetheless. But uh, I think that's probably a good way to wrap it up, guys. So thank you very, very much for joining us in this uh, little time warp, if you like, into F1's past. We hope that you can join us for many more episodes in the future. And until then, stay safe. Thanks for tuning in. And we'll see you in the next episode of the DNF1 Retro Podcast. Take care. See you soon. Podcast Network.